My name is Hajim. I am with the Washington, D.C. chapter of the American Living Organ Donor Fund. Thank you for joining me in this episode of Conversations with Living Organ Donors. In this episode, I will be talking with Anthony Henderson. He donated a kidney to his biological father in 2014. Unfortunately, his dad is not with us any longer. We will be talking about Anthony's donation experience, but this interview is also a tribute to his dad, Mr. Harold Piquel. Thank you for joining me today, Anthony, and I'm very sorry for your loss. Well, thank you. Actually, it's ironic uh, that you wrote me today because today marks the first anniversary of his transition. He was an amazing man, and I'll tell you more about him as we as we engage in our conversation. Yeah, again, I'm I'm really sorry. Were you guys living in in D.C. or in Florida? I was living in uh, Maryland at the time in Prince George's County, and he was living in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn okay. has been his home for the past 20 years. So, how did the whole donation come about? Was he um, did he have kidney issues for a while? He did. Um, so probably about, I don't know, nine years ago or so, um, he visited me for the very, very first time in his life. And uh, when I, it wasn't the first time I met him because I had met him, learned about him and met him when I was 21. That was in 1990. Okay. But we remained estranged up until about three years ago. Uh, but he did happen to come and visit me um, you know, about nine years ago, and he and his wife, they were en route from one destination to another and passed through uh, the city I lived in at the time, which was in Maryland also. He had talked to me then during breakfast about how he had recently gotten out of the hospital and that he had been really sick, that he almost died, that, um, you know, they had put him on a medication that he felt uh, caused his kidneys to fail, and so he was a new dialysis patient at that time. Um, how long had he been on dialysis at that point? It was very new. It had only been maybe a couple months. So when I heard him say he was on dialysis, the first thing I said was, are you on dialysis because you need a kidney? Mm. And he said, yeah. Um, and I said, well, I'll give you one. I can't believe you didn't ask. And he was really shocked because we had been estranged for so long in our relationship that I guess he never even considered asking a possibility. That's so amazing. I, yeah, so after um, he, he and his wife left to go home, uh, within a couple of weeks I got tested locally uh, through a process that, you know, allows for that. I was sent a kit in the mail. It was a blood test I had to take the uh, prescription to my doctor and get uh, blood tested. Um, and then they wrote back and said that um, I was a match, a very good match, and they thought if we wanted to proceed that they would take it to the next step. But at that time, he also had some problems with his liver. And so as we engaged the next step, they thought maybe it wasn't the best time for him. And then I think he also felt a little strange because I had offered the gesture um, and he was a little reluctant. So we just agreed to give it some time mm -hmm. uh, to see how it would work out with his condition, you know, around his liver and all of that. So, uh, so the actual transplant didn't happen until about seven years later. 
What was your relationship like during those seven years? We were still estranged. I mean, you know, it took a lot for us to uh, build our relationship. And, uh, I, you know, I had made the gesture. Uh, we didn't follow through at the time, uh, even once he got better because uh, he was probably better within a couple years, you know, in terms of being eligible to go ahead with the transplant. Okay. But he kind of didn't move forward, and so it just kind of sat out there for a long time, and he wasn't keeping in touch. You know, I was doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of maintaining a relationship. Mm -hmm. So in 2014, I got to a point where I just said, you know, enough is enough. I don't want to work so hard at maintaining a relationship that isn't, investing also in me mm -hmm. and uh, I wrote him a letter and the letter was kind of like my personal way of clearing out you know um, that space and the letter ended up being a game changer mm -hmm. uh, he wrote me back in response and it started a brand new relationship between us one that uh, forced a new commitment to always be honest and present with one another mm -hmm. and to do the work to heal our relationship, um, which was, you know, like I said, had been estranged. Um, what did your letter say to him? Well, that's a good question. I had never really gotten the complete story of everything that happened from his perspective. Mm -hmm. I had heard about him from a lot of other people. Uh, or from a few other people, and I had never gotten his perspective. Um, so I kind of pieced together the story and wrote the letter to myself as if I were him. And it was my way of giving me what I thought I needed from him. Uh, and the letter, you know, talked about how uh, I came about and how irresponsible he was and, you know, how he put other things first and how he, you know, didn't seem to care whether he was actually my dad or not, you mm. know, how he didn't seem to care that I was alive or not. Mm. Um, and I think that moved him in a powerful way. And so when he wrote me back, he wrote himself a letter as if he was me. Oh, wow. And that started a whole new conversation with us. Were you, you must have been afraid of his response or no response? Um, you know, I can't say that I was afraid because I was frustrated and kind of releasing myself. Okay. So I, I was a little nervous, but I wanted him to see it. So I was more nervous about, you know, realizing that I had written myself out of his life and watching that unfold mm -hmm. by giving him the letter. Mm -hmm. um, but the opposite happened. You know, he, like, awakened, and he became this amazing force in my life. And, you know, before his transition, we became almost like best friends. Wow. Um, do you it was think, really powerful. Do you think he was a little bit afraid of you, or did he not know how to get, um, I don't know, how to connect with you before the letter? It was probably a combination of things. You know, um, I think he may have been a little mistrusting of my intentions because I kind of, I found him in the world. Like, I didn't know who he was when I was 21 in 1990. And I searched for him and found him and told him who I was. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, he kind of had heard that, like he knew he had a son, but he didn't know where I landed or where I ended up or with who I ended up, you know. And so I was just kind of almost a figment in his imagination because I had never really been a tangible presence in his life. And so when I showed up as an adult, I think he felt a little skeptical, you know, and, and uncertain about why I would choose to show up when, you know, I grew up with loving parents, a father and a mother, um, so I think it just took a while, and I think he also was in a space where he felt, um, you know, like I was a part of a, I was a part of him that arrived at a time when he didn't really like himself too much, oh, wow. and it was kind of easy to embrace his current life and to let go of his past, and I was a part of his past. Mm-hmm. So I think that. Um, you know, it wasn't until, you know, we actually met that I became kind of real, um, almost in a, in a confrontational way about having him face me at 21 years old after not having had any presence in my life at all. You know, ironically, he was a completely absent dad to me, and he was a half-present dad to my two brothers, uh, but then by the time he became a stepdad to his wife's children, uh, he raised them from small children as a fully present dad until they became adults. And actually, uh, my stepbrother's name is also Anthony. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't get away from raising an Anthony even if he tried. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think what made him amazing is that when you knew his life story of of, of how troubled he was as a young person and how much impacted him and how he spent, you know, a long part of his young adulthood, you know, to watch him get clean and sober and to maintain a job and to learn how to save money and take care of his finances and his business and then to take on the responsibility of marriage and raising children um, full-time and being present, you know, and then to later get involved in the church and become a man of faith and to, you know, later on have grandchildren and be a very present and happy and loving granddad. You know, you can see, I, I could see his journey through life, and I had a deep appreciation for watching his transformation and being a part of it at the end, you know, but watching it mostly and learning about it, it, it just was a very special um, thing to witness. And his wife, you know, I think had a lot to do with that. She was his fiercest protector. Um, and she is a very strong woman who has a deep uh, and abiding faith. And I think that's what attracted him to her. Um, and I think together they made a wonderful team, and I think that uh, all of those things, you know, uh, the progression through his life, you know, led to, you know, this moment of time in his 60s where he could just see the entire picture and have an appreciation for it. Wow. So what was your motivation for offering, like, what made you offer your kidney to him? Was it spur of the moment or? Um... It was very spur of the moment 
because I'm a person that likes to help and fix things. And so when I realized that somebody I cared about needed something that I could potentially provide, it was natural for me to just offer it. And I was a little bit familiar with donation in the sense that, you know, um, science and technology had made it such that people who donated could live normal, healthy, long lives just like everybody else, and that, you know, I knew enough about the way, you know, our kidneys function, that we could function healthy off of one kidney and all of that. So I never really hesitated to to do it. Um, I think, you know, on a larger level, um, I think there was a part of me that felt like, he might not have felt worthy because of our relationship. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him to know that he was worthy, worthy enough for me to do that kind of gesture. Wow. I mean, I'm imagining, I'm putting myself in your father's shoes as you tell me this. And I mean, it's, I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah, I think he felt like that for a long time. That's why it was a seven-year period between the initial testing and then the retesting to actual manifestation of the surgery. Um, did anybody else offer, or did he ask anybody else? No. Perfect match. In mm -hmm. fact, um, the day we had the surgery, they kind of, well, you know, in the pre-surgical process, they kind of warn you, Like, you know, once we do the kidney, you might have to have one or two more dialysis treatments, you know, things like that to until the kidney is functioning properly. But from the second they put the kidney in him, it functioned, and he never had another dialysis treatment. You know, they get you up and about pretty quickly yeah. after surgery. Um, so when I – the first time I saw him after surgery was when – uh, I was moving from recovery to an actual room, mm -hmm. and they wheeled me in front of his bed, and he was already sitting up, waving at me and letting oh me know that he gosh. made it. He was okay. Oh, my God. Did you cry? Yeah. Oh no. I was like, how come you're sitting up and I feel like I got <laughs> hit by a truck? <laughs> That's how it is. <laughs> so, you know, I go, man, you're doing so good. You know, how come you're awake <laughs> before me? You know, how come you're sitting up and I'm, you know, I feel like I got hit by a truck. <laughs> so, but it was awesome. And, and to see him the next day was just the most amazing experience because I went to his room and... His skin was so clear and mm -hmm. beautiful and, mm -hmm. like, glowing, like it just transformed. He just looked like he went from looking kind of sick to mm -hmm. looking, like, healthy overnight, literally overnight. Yeah. It was an amazing thing to witness. Um, and I was just so happy, you know, to see him, you know, like, feeling better immediately. Like, that was a powerful experience. Wow. I mean, he still, you know, it wasn't without his challenges. I don't I don't want to give the listeners the impression that, like, oh, my God, it was a miracle he was healed. Like, no, it was a process afterwards. You know, he had to, he had to um, deal with, you know, frequent urinations for months. Like, he would get up every hour and a half to go pee, you know, yeah. which is the opposite of being on dialysis because you rarely pee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> on, on dialysis. Yeah. Do you so you know he had to heal from the the scar and the and the incision you know which takes its own process but yeah. the benefit far outweighed you know the the challenges. What about for you? Did you recover quickly after the surgery, or did you have any challenges? 
I would say both. I think for me, the biggest challenge was a loss of energy. Okay. Um, it took about six weeks to eight weeks for me to feel fully present and engaged in an all-day kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, right after surgery, like when I came home to recover, um, I literally had to choose in the morning between eating or taking a shower. I couldn't do both back-to-back. Oh, it was that bad. Because I would just be too tired, yeah. Wow. So that went on for the first couple of weeks, like, and I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, what did I do, you know? Mm -hmm. But they had told me, you know, it takes about six weeks before you feel better and, you know, you'll, you'll see it gradually. So, you know, probably a couple of weeks in, I was, you know, starting to sit up for a few hours at a time. Um, but I, I liked to lay down in the process because it was very uncomfortable for a while. Mm-hmm. Who helped you during the recovery process? So at the time I had my best friends who are a married couple were also my roommates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had some very, very close friends who, um, were around a lot and looking in on me and making sure that I, you know, got the meals that I needed and, you know, had the supplies that I needed. Um, but it was just a very, you know, very slow process. I had received also um, a grant from uh, the American Transplant Association, I think is the name of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the grant was supporting my time off from work by um, paying my essential bills for the month that I needed to recover. Okay, similar to the American Living Organ Donor Fund. Exactly, yeah. Only at that time I didn't know about the Living Organ Donor Fund. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and then you ended up volunteering for them. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I sure did. That's that's exactly why I ended up, because I found them online, Mm -hmm. and I wrote The Secret uh, and asked about opportunities to volunteer and uh, she had talked about wanting to start a local chapter of the Living Organ Donor Fund in the D.C. area. And uh, Thank you for you know, founding it. <laughs> yeah, that kind of gave birth to the D.C. Living Organ Donor Fund. So when did you move back to Florida? I moved back to Florida in October of 2016. Uh, My parents that raised me are 94 and 86 years old now. They were aging and they had a desire to age in place and needed some additional support. So I moved back to Miami to uh, support their aging process and to make sure that their quality of life, you know, is maintained and that they, you know, can live as comfortably and peacefully as they're willing to. So my parents are Clifford and May Henderson, and they adopted me, you know, from birth. They picked me up from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I never knew another home or another set of parents until I was 21 years old. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, your biological father, did he die at the hospital? Or at home? He did. He died in the hospital. So the process of his transition started on, I think, June 1st, which was uh, his wife's birthday. He had been planning to do something really special for her. And a few Mm -hmm. days before that, uh, maybe a week and a half before that, he talked about having 
kind of a low-grade fever and feeling like he might be coming down with something. And he was worried about it because, um, you know, when you're a kidney recipient, you're on anti-rejection medication, so your body really can't fight off infection well. Right. And he was worried about, you know, coming down with something, so he went to the emergency room and got checked out. And, you know, everything seemed to be okay on the surface. His kidney was functioning fine. There didn't seem to be any cause for concern. Uh, so they sent him home and, you know, called him and told him his test results were uh, pretty good, no need to worry. Uh, and then that next week leading up to her birthday, which was June 1st, um, he said he felt it again. And he, at the time, was still going every two months to check in with his uh, nephrologist, you know, his kidney team. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, look, you have this appointment coming up with your kidney folks. Why don't you just tell them that you haven't been feeling good and that you've been having these symptoms because they'll probably do a little bit more digging and do some more testing. And so, you know, I think that's what he did. He got to that appointment and told them that, you know, he hadn't been feeling very well. And they um, gave him some tests, and then they told him he they thought he should go to the emergency room right away. Mm-hmm. And he went, and they began a series of tests that took probably about a week and a half because... They kept trying to rule out, okay, well, we know something's going on, but we don't know what it is. We know it's not this. We know it's not this. Let's test this. Let's test that. So at that point, so was it, took, it his kidney at all, or at that point they, they didn't know at all? They didn't know um, his kidney seemed to be functioning fine, but there were a couple of moments during the routine testing, because they were testing him almost every day, and there were a couple of moments when his... Um, What's the number for your kidney? Your uh, Creatinine? Yes, or his levels creatine? were increasing. Um, so they knew that the kidney was working hard to oh. fight infection or something like that. So they did more and more digging, and they realized that um, he had uh, aggressive leukemia. Oh, no. Yeah, and so, you know, we I must give props to the team at Wild Cornell um, Medical Center because they really did a thorough job in assessing and diagnosing, and they also did uh, a job of reassuring Dr. Anthony Watkins uh, is a surgeon. He was my dad's surgeon, Harold's surgeon, and um, he was amazing in the process. You know, he, he actually made himself available to chat with me to kind of comfort the family, you know, to answer all the questions we had. And, you know, in reality, this was a uh, a possibility, you know, which was probably discussed with Harold before the surgery. But, um, you know, these types of cases only happen maybe less than 1% of the time or less than 2% of the time. You mean and cancer? So, for a, a, a recipient? Contracting leukemia, yes. Oh, man. Yeah. They tell you, you know, like they, like there were things they told me before surgery, like, you know, you'll lose a little kidney function for a while, but some of it will recover, you know, or, um, you know, you'll be at risk for this or that, you know. So they tell you, especially as a, as, as, your, as a person who's going to receive, you know, 
because you're on this anti-rejection medication, you have to be very vigilant. You have to watch out for everything, you know, and here are some of the possibilities. But then they also tell you, you know, the based on the studies, the number of times this occurs. And so, right. you know, if they tell you, well, you know, you have a 98% chance of succeeding, I mean, who's not going to say, okay, I want to do that? Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a 98% chance, I'm probably going to fall in that that category. Mm -hmm. But in Harold's case, you know, he was in that, that less than 1% to 2% chance of people that would ultimately contract leukemia. Um, oh, no. And so they started him on a very, very, very aggressive chemotherapy regimen, and that regimen, I think, was the thing that probably just took him out. I don't think his body could handle, you know, that strong chemotherapy. So yeah. he actually he went in on June 1st to start this process of being evaluated and treated. Um, he actually never came out of the hospital, and he died on July 7th of 2016, one year oh. ago today. I am so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I'm still amazed by it all because, um, you know, his wife and I were in his room at his side when it occurred. Um, mm -hmm. He had been unconscious for maybe a day or two prior to that. Um, but, you know, he was very loved and, and very cared for and had a great team of people supporting him. Um, and he also had, you know, he told us he knew he had a spiritual army fighting for him as well, you know, um, and wanting him to be better um, mm -hmm. and to live well. So, yep, he made his transition a year ago today. Wow. So how did this, you know, the fact that you gave him a kidney, and then, unfortunately, he passed away. Like, how does that make you feel about having donated? I feel amazing. I don't, I don't connect the two toward any particular judgment about, you know, should I have or did I do the right thing or any of that. Like, I know for sure that I did the right thing. And, you know he gave me a chance to do something extraordinary that I could be proud of um, and to carry that with me throughout my life. And, you know, I wear my scar like a badge of honor, you know. <laughs> I understand. Um, yeah, it's like my badge of honor. And um, so I have no regrets at all about it. In fact, you know, what's beautiful is that for 18 months or 19 months after he got the kidney, um, he lived probably the healthiest he had lived in in his life. Mm. Um, you know, he was able to, able to feel good, to not be sick, to not feel like he needed to sleep all the time after dialysis. He he went and took a computer class at a school, and then he went and got a chaplaincy certificate from the. Uh, I think it was the New York State Chaplains Board or the U.S. Chaplaincy something. That's awesome. Uh, so he became, yeah, he became a recognized chaplain just a couple of months before he died. I mean, he was literally doing great. And wow. um, 
He was traveling more with his wife. He had all these dreams about spending time with her and taking her on well-deserved vacations and things like that um, that ultimately they wouldn't get to do. But um, they did a few, you know, short trips and, and had a lot of fun together, and he was a lot better during that time. Yeah. You know, he had a lot of, of fun, and he lived, I think, completely free for the first time, you know. Um, so, you know, he treasured every minute of that 18 months. And, um, you know, I have no regrets. Uh, my husband didn't end up on dialysis for a while. He was on it for maybe, I forget how many treatments before the transplant. Maybe yes. three or four. But I've been around, you know, other people that have to live with dialysis. And it, it's not... It's not a good quality life. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, he he was tired of it. You know, he said, I've been on this for seven years. You know, he had kind of been warned, even though there are people that survive dialysis for decades, you know, some mm -hmm. for over 20 years. You know, he had kind of been told that the average life expectancy was, you know, seven to ten years. Mm -hmm. uh, for someone on dialysis. And so, you know, he had reached that seven-year point, and I think he started to get, you know, not only was he not feeling well, but I think he maybe started to internalize, you know, some of that clock, like, well, you know, am I starting to fade out? Am I not doing well? You know, mm -hmm. so, um, but dialysis did serve him very well. I mean, you know, other than the time commitment and the energy drain and things like that, you know, it kept him alive and able to function well and to do the things he needed to do mm -hmm. uh, up until we had surgery. So I don't want to paint dialysis as a negative picture because it, it serves a great purpose for many people. That's true, too. Um, yeah, but um, it's a hard life, you know, to uh, have to deal with it. Uh, because it, it is very time-consuming and can be, for some people, uh, a drain on their energy. Yeah. Was he was he on a list at all for a deceased donor? Yeah, I can't actually remember. I There was a time when he had talked about um, being concerned about being on a list and getting a call and getting, you know, he wanted kind of some clarity about the organ that he would be getting, you know, um, like I think he had suffered from hepatitis C. And so, you know, they talked about giving him a hep C organ and he said, well, wait a minute, you mm -hmm. know, I'm not sure that I want a hep C organ, you know, things like that. Uh -huh. um, so he was very concerned about it. So I'm not, I can't remember if he um, okay. went on a list or not. I do know he entertained those conversations with his wife and with his doctors, but I can't remember if he was actually put on a list or where he was on the list. Mm -hmm. um, and was there anything that the doctors or surgeons would have said to you that would have made you change your mind about donating? You know, there was one time um, that it, it wasn't so much what they said but it looked like, so we, the date that we had surgery wasn't the original scheduled surgery date. That's a good question. I'm glad you're making me recall this story. We were originally supposed to have surgery, I want to say, in August um, of 2014. Mm -hmm. And when you're going to have surgery uh, one week before, you 
have to go in for a final round of testing to make sure you're both still doing well and, uh, you know, they check everything in your blood. And shortly before that, he had contracted Bell's palsy. Uh, And so he was still recovering from that. And when we went for final testing, I had contracted West Nile virus from a mosquito bite. Oh, my gosh. And so they said, well, you can't, you know, we can't, for both of your sakes, we can't do the surgery. You know, he's got Bell's palsy he's still recovering from, and you've got West Nile. So we're going to postpone, and we'll revisit this again in a couple months. I think they said three months. Hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, about halfway through, they called, and they set a new date. And then we went for final testing again. Uh, I believe it was October 30th or 31st, and we got cleared. We were both well and thriving again, and, um, you know, we did it. Mm. And you said the um, surgery happened in New York? It did at Wild Cornell. Um, the, the, it's part of New York Presbyterian Hospital, but it's Wild Cornell Kidney Center or something like that. And, um, you know, a funny story was when they came to take me to surgery. So they came in, you know, they were, everybody was in a good mood. They were laughing and talking with us and they said, okay, Anthony, are you ready? And I go, yeah, I'm ready. They were like, okay, follow us. I'm like, well, you know, where's my stretcher? Like, don't you guys put me on a stretcher and push me to the thing? And they're like, no, you're going to walk. And so I walk all the way to the operating room, and then they tell me, okay, you can get on the table. I'm like, well, am I going to perform my own surgery? Like, (laughs) you know? Yeah, so it was an interesting experience, and there are elements about it I'll never forget. I just had this whole impression about what it would be like, you know, like, like, They'd bring me a stretcher like and they'd wheel me into the thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like on TV, right? It was none of that. They were like, yeah, just follow us. I was like, uh. <laughs> so you mean tell me I got to walk myself to the operating room? Like, come on, guys. No, but it was a lot of fun to, to go through that process. Oh, that's funny. Did you ask your dad for a new car? The doctors were teasing us. They were saying, okay, but this is your chance to ask your husband for the car you've been wanting. <laughs> No, in fact, you know, what was so interesting is, um, you know, I never, I I don't think I ever had it. The only thing I wanted from him, and, and it had nothing to do with the transplant, was his presence and his time and his acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And he started giving me that long before we had the surgery, you know, in 2014, when when we exchanged letters. And we started visiting each other, you know, at least monthly. So mm-hmm. we went from having, you know, three or four visits in 23 years to visiting every month. Wow. Um, and we started doing, I asked him if he wanted to take our story public, and he said yes, and so we did. And we started doing public workshops and talks in front of audiences about, you know, our road as a as a uh, father-son kind of rebuilding or transforming our relationship. And and um, it was very powerful stuff. I mean, we we spoke in front of, you know, a combined audience of hundreds of people over mm-hmm. a two-year period. Um, so it was really nice. Obviously, you know, I 
I'm 100% sure that it was sincere from your dad's point of view, but I imagine some people would be thinking, oh, he was being nice because you were going to give him a kidney. No, you know, um, we kind of put that out there. Well, toward the end when the surgery thing came about, you know, we just kind of put it out there. But prior to that, um, when we reconnected, um, we weren't yet revisiting the idea of the surgery. Okay. So remember, I had gotten tested, you know, years before, like in 2007 or eight, And mm -hmm. um, in 2014, you know, we were all about rebuilding the relationship. We didn't, we were not having discussions about the kidney at that point. I don't know. I think that even, like in my case, even if it was because the other person wanted a kidney, I think that mm -hmm. if I was getting something out of the relationship that I was looking for, you know, that I was happy with, I think I would probably be okay as long as the other person obviously is not being evil. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting about that is the process that you go through to become a donor, I mean, you, it, it's a very complex and intentional process. You have to talk to doctors and therapists and financial counselors and, um, you know, everybody, all, this, this whole entire team. I think my team had like seven people on it. Mm -hmm. um, and they talk you through, you know, managing your expectations and making sure that you're doing it for all the right reasons. Like one of the, one of the people on the team was a social worker. And she was very frank with me about, you know, are you doing this because you're looking for your relationship to improve? You know, are mm -hmm. you doing this because you have expectations from your dad that, you know, because they want to make sure, like, you're not doing this, you know, almost like you're gambling where you're expecting some kind of return that may or may not come about. You know, they also check things like how attached are you to the organ, you know, if you donate it and he dies or you donate it and it fails mm -hmm. and he has to get a second surgery, you know, or, you know, just all these scenarios that they gave me. And thankfully, you know, I passed the test, but it wasn't an easy process. So they really do a good job of educating you and also checking for where you are. They're, they're trained professionals. They can actually tell, you know, whether or not they believe you're in it for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, so it, it was a good process to go through because, you know, after going, like I was 100% sure before I did it, but going through that process actually made me stop and reflect and pause. And then when we had the, you know, the delay because of our conditions, that was another pausing moment. Like, and there, the, the other thing that made me pause was there was a time when, you know, I had my own team and he had his own team and they operate independently, but they collaborate. So my team and his team were not communicating the best. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, we told them we wanted to do all of our appointments together to the extent possible because it would allow us to have a visit and go through this process together. But sometimes his team would just give him an appointment without checking whether or not I was available. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes my team would um, do things or or confirm things that 
weren't actually confirmed by his team. And so at a point, I actually sat with my coordinator and I said, this is starting to scare me because if you can't do a good job of coordinating uh, our visit, (laughs) then how can we expect you're going to do a good job cutting open our bodies, (laughs) you know? Um, So we, you know, we had a lot of that going on, but ultimately, you know, it was a, it was an amazing thing to do. The social workers asked you some very good questions. They did. They really did. I mean, yeah, I think that I had to really reflect on the experience based on their questions because it was actually an interview um, where she had a questionnaire and she had to, she had to check off these things, you know, um, do I have unrealistic expectations? You know, what headspace am I in about it? You know, mm-hmm. um, do I hope that anything changes in the relationship? You know, would I be okay if, if you know, things didn't work out? You know, yeah. how would I feel if, if you know, he didn't make it through the surgery? You know, I mean, they, they really, like, they really went there. And yeah. um, I'm so yeah. glad they did, yeah. <sighs> Um, during the interview that I had, <laughs> I do remember, you know, questions like that. Um, and also like personal questions about my own mental health and mm-hmm. just my life overall. And I really wanted them to approve me. But at the same time, you know, I still have to be honest. So with I that's think right. <laughs> with every question, I was like, yes, <laughs> I felt the exact same way. I was like, OK. I can't lie because I felt like they're going to know I'm lying, <laughs> you know? So I was like, okay, I'm going to be honest and just tell them the truth, you know? I mean, I would have done that anyway, but it was just like, you know, there were some of those questions that felt like trick questions, yes, you know? exactly. It was like, I want to answer it the way I want to answer it, but I better not because then they'll see me and they'll know I'm lying <laughs> and I won't be able to do it. Okay, so, so it wasn't just me. <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, and they actually didn't ask me this, but I did consider, you know, if my relationship with my husband fails, like, you know, something happens and we right. get separated, a divorce, like, how am I going to feel about it? And at the end, you have to do it out of love, no matter where the right. recipient is going to end up. And then, of course, after I donated, people start telling me about, oh, did you hear about George Lopez, his wife? No, he left his wife after she gave him a kidney. And I'm like, oh, man, don't. What? Don't tell I didn't me know that. Stories. Wow. Yeah, apparently they're not together anymore. You know, every relationship is different. So, um, where are your incisions? So, there's a very small incision on my left side, lower left side. And then there's about a. I guess it's maybe a two-inch vertical scar that goes down the side of my belly. I'm sorry, the the front of my belly, like the side of my belly button. Vertically? Um, yes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So they went into the side to disconnect the kidney, and then they opened the front to mm-hmm. remove it. Okay. Yeah, the uh, surgeon told me they put it in a pouch inside your body and pull it out. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. I don't know if I have any more questions. I think that's it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Anthony, for talking with me today and giving me 
so much of your time. Well, you're more than welcome. I'm so happy to be able to to do this on the day that commemorates the anniversary of his passing. And as I thought about him earlier and saw your email, I was like, what a perfect way for me to to be in reflection, you know, and to continue the work that we started together um, and to continue, you know, encouraging people to consider living donation. And it's just a, it's just an awesome day to do it, you know, and it gives me a chance to, to think about, you know, this man that I love so deeply uh, who became like my best friend, you know, mm -hmm. so I just I, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. And as I mentioned before in the last episode, the American Living Organ Donor Fund is a nonprofit organization that helps living organ donors in the U.S. make their donation as stress-free and cost-neutral as possible. If you're considering donating an organ or have donated in the past, please join the American Living Organ Donor Fund closed Facebook group. There you can connect with other donors and others considering donating an organ. This group is only for donors and people considering donation. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, please email me at director at dclivingorgandonors.org. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. Be encouraged. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>